This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It is the world's biggest and widest archival system. It's almost like a collective memory. And it's also, it's sort of an example of when we let machines be in charge of our programming. And I think it's a test case for what that looks like. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. And every few months, we pick a book that explores a new idea or offers a fresh perspective on a familiar one and bring the author on the show. This week, we're going to speak with the writer of a fascinating new book about YouTube. Stephanie, do you remember the first video you watched on YouTube? No, I don't have like a a clear memory of that. If I had to guess, I would probably think it was either some nerdy panel of economists talking or maybe like a music video. Well, on that note, I'm not sure it was the first one I watched, but it was the first one that caught my attention. It was a guy who sang this video of an original song called Chocolate Rain. It's a really well-done song that explores a lot of topics about race and society. And he delivered it very powerfully, but it was also a little quirky because he was in the studio and he had to explain (laughs) during the video that when he moved away from the microphone, it was so that you didn't hear him breathing. So a lot of people kind of laughed about that. You know, it was like one of those things you also kind of instantly knew. You didn't hear on the radio, but here it was on this other platform. Chocolate rain. Some stay dry and others feel the pain. Chocolate rain. Let's get to the book. The book is called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. And it was written by Mark Bergen, a reporter who covers YouTube, Google, and Alphabet for Bloomberg. Bergen and I talked about how the now ubiquitous platform came to be what it is today, how YouTube makes money, and what lies ahead for what was and still is a big idea in money. Maybe even a best, if no longer new idea, although I'll let listeners be the judge of that. Mark, to get started, can you briefly tell us a little bit about just how enormous YouTube is? Yeah, so the stats that they share, and these are a little bit, I think a couple years old now, The mind-boggling stat that I still struggle with to wrap my head around is the 500 hours of video uploaded every minute. That's every minute. That's how much new additional footage is added. They have, for several years now, described over 2 billion monthly viewers. My reporting suggests that they have close to that number of daily users, certainly over like 1.5 billion. The superlatives sort of go on and on. One of the things that you deal with very early in the book is that YouTube as this great revolutionary idea of everybody creating their own content, sharing it on this platform, was not necessarily a money-making idea, both for YouTube and even, I guess, by extension for the content creators. Talk a little bit about that, that just because something is a good idea doesn't make it a good money-making idea, at least in the beginning. 
For sure. Certainly there was not a sense at Google at the time in 2007, or I think maybe even say like seven years after, give or take, it really started changing around 2013, 2014, that this corpus of amateur homemade videos and the non sort of professional video stars could be anything like commercial, like that advertisers would ever want to sponsor videos that they could actually have any type of get anywhere near like a television and film industry as far as like commercial success was something that I think very few people at YouTube thought and believed at the time. So it wasn't a guarantee. And YouTube business was they had this remarkable model where unlike TV, you know, they don't have to they pay for server space and bandwidth to host the videos, but they didn't pay a dime for the videos, right? Creators put them on there and they didn't need to stick a satellite like television networks. But still, within a few years, it, you know, it was just bleeding money in its first few years at Google before they really cracked the code of figuring how to connect this gigantic body of creators producing a lot of videos with the advertisers that were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to want to get in front of this audience somehow. So that took several years and a, and a lot of different tweaks and false starts before that actually clicked. What was, in your view, key to cracking this code? That's a good question. The I think a couple of things. One is YouTube made this transition in 2012. They initially prioritized in the ranking systems and on search videos that got the most views and clicks. And so if you clicked on a video, you watch for a couple of seconds, you're like, ah, this isn't for me. And you went away. That's that's same as, as someone who watched the entirety of a video. And so YouTube thought, well, this was an ideal metric for us. And a much better one would be to prioritize videos that have longer watch time. And this had all sorts of unintended consequences, but certainly one that was intended was initially there was a dip in their revenue from sales, but then it just started to, to take off because they introduced all these new formats that really didn't exist on television. Right? We have like video game streamers became a thing, like fashion makeup tutorials and beauty gurus, toy unboxing channels, like all these sort of niches that are like pretty low production. You don't have to spend a lot of money to shoot these videos, but you can make them for a long time. They're compelling enough to keep people watching. And I think around that same time, Google is the world's biggest digital advertising company. It has been, it's just like built this phenomenal system for selling search ads. It had enough energy and momentum and they put a lot of effort into convincing advertisers that, hey, this is where the audience is coming. And if you want your audience, you better get on this thing. And I think around 2012, 2013, that started to work in a just a significant way. And then there's still this sort of secular trend where the amount of money spent on television and traditional advertising doesn't really reflect the fact that a lot of eyeballs are on digital. Something that stuck out to me when I read the book was the importance of YouTube's user interface and just the importance of YouTube being, well, kind of like easy to use. Can you talk about this? I think that's something that we take for granted now, the fact that we can go on a website and get free video on demand instantaneously, like with no buffer. This was, YouTube was sort of a pioneer and it's like now we have it with Netflix and Disney Plus and all sorts of streaming services, but I guess those aren't free necessarily. But like that was one was YouTube's huge advantage early on, built this sort of web component that allowed it to embed videos in different sites. And so at that time, web video was like a lot of, you had to watch web video on a specific player on a, like the Microsoft web player or the Google video had a competing product, Google video web player. You couldn't watch it elsewhere on the internet. And the YouTube's, uh, I think, revolution, I think the reason that it took off was because it, it had that adaptability and it was like a really simple, it still is like that sort of pretty easy notion of like, click on a video. I know where to click play. I know how to stop it. I think that was sort of the genius of the early creators. One of the priorities for Google for a long time was like make YouTube load as quickly as possible. 
I think you can raise really good questions about the societal cost that the company put that as a priority, like make this thing load quickly. But if you're interested in as a Google shareholder and as a YouTube user, it certainly pays off in the sense that we can just rely on the fact that YouTube seamlessly works. When we're back, how does YouTube make money? And how important is YouTube to Google and holding company Alphabet's business? That's after the break. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back to The Best New Ideas in Money. I'm Charles Passy. Today I'm talking with Mark Bergen, author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. The book, which is a behind-the-scenes history of how YouTube came to be what it is today, also details the business of YouTube and examines how the platform generates revenue. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Simply put, how does YouTube make money? Yeah, YouTube takes TV's model, basically, they run ads either before a video plays, and now increasingly in the middle of the video, sometimes around like pop-up screens on the video, the advertisers will pay Google often in a big bundle, they're going to buy like search ads, they'll buy ads on the internet, and then they'll buy video ads. And that's the primary way that YouTube makes money. They give out 55% of that often to the video producer and creator, and then keep the remaining 45%. And how much money are we talking here? Fairly certain 29 billion was their YouTube sales in 2021 last year. And I think Google overall made over 100 billion. So still a significant contributor to Google and Alphabet, the parent company. In 2017, the first time that that's as far back as YouTube has disclosed their revenue, that was around 8 billion. So that's a huge $20 billion jump in four years. It's worth noting that YouTube launched YouTube TV in 2017. The service is now the biggest internet-based pay TV offering, with more than 5 million users in the United States, according to Variety. The bull case for YouTube is like, there's only so much, there's like, they're going to keep growing in part because they just, they've gone through like 2017, 2018, they had these big advertiser boycotts and these series of crises, and they've sort of largely come out of that intact and now revving up. I think there's a there's certainly a bear case about the future, but they've been growing during the pandemic. They just had a, a massive surge in, in viewership that helped their business grow, certainly in like 2021. It's been amazing to see how YouTube, despite all the controversy, continues to generate a tremendous amount of revenue. Mark, how important is YouTube to Google's business? 
So I think there's the financial numbers, which is it's a growing portion of an area that Google is trying to diversify beyond search for clear financial reasons. And then I think for antitrust reasons, it's under heavy scrutiny from the Department of Justice for being a search monopoly. So any time that can show that, look, we have other businesses too. It's really important for Google in the sense that it now has like a vested enormous stake in social networks and social media and e-commerce in this greater economy that is set to grow tremendously. And then I guess to circle back, the third point kind of refutes the first, but like it is the world's second biggest search engine right behind Google. And so in the sense that Google is a company whose financial success depends on like an ability to still be the world's like gateway to the internet and the biggest uh, search engine there is, having YouTube is a vital part of that success. In case you're wondering, yes, you heard that right. Google and Google-owned YouTube are the world's biggest search engines. You mentioned regulatory scrutiny, and I want to ask you about one of the major critiques of YouTube. It's a free service, but some critics argue that the business model is really just a way to mine data that these companies can then use for other purposes. What's your perspective on this? I think YouTube can plausibly argue, and I think it's true that for sure their business model is based on our watching and like extracting our data. Like it's a free service and you're paid based on the data that it provides to advertisers. But it, the, the utility there is that they have created entire new businesses and launched careers and an entire economy that didn't exist 20 years ago. And I think that has transformed how like learning and, and information works on the internet. And I think that's a major reason why YouTube has maybe elided some of the criticisms and certainly regulation, just given its size, was because it, so many people use it as a utility and they use it as like this, this functional thing, similar to Google, right? Like Google search and Google maps has profoundly shaped society, but it's like more people use it as, as a tool, it helps me travel, helps me learn a thing. I think that's YouTube's contribution. And I think that's what the company and some people in the company kind of wanted to lean in more on that aspect. So what is YouTube in your view? I asked this question to Hank Green, one of the old school YouTubers, and he said, that's like asking me what is music, which I interpreted that as like, it is everything. It is many things to many people. It is a utility. It is a repository. It is the world's biggest and widest archival system. It's almost like a collective memory and it's also a creature of like really unpredictable algorithmic programming. It's sort of a, an example of when we let like machines be in charge of our programming. And I think it's a test case for what that looks like. Even if the algorithms are key to how YouTube works, humans, at least for now, are in charge of the platform. Let's talk about YouTube's chief executive, Susan Wojcicki. What has she brought to the table that has made YouTube a success? Or do you think she has made a difference in terms of YouTube's success? I think she's absolutely made a difference in part. I think what I wanted readers to hopefully get across from the book is sort of how important how it is to understand how Google works. And, you know, Google has this sort of off again, on again, like involvement with YouTube during years. But it is a Google company. I think it would always be a Google company. And Susan Wojcicki's Google was started in her garage. Like she is, at this point, the Google founders have virtually retired. They've like left the company and there is effectively like no one who's been in the company longer than Wojcicki. And I think that that matters for a variety of reasons. And one of it is she just like understands the company and the culture in this way. I think that's the downside there. I don't like, I think she would admit this too, but 
she does. She's not a creature of Hollywood. She's not necessarily a media person. I think people I've talked to in Hollywood have said that like she's learned a lot, but you can see that the company is, has not, you know, at, at various times in the history, it tried to do that. It did original programming and it's tried to sort of lean in on the streaming wars. Now it's moving. It's not moving in that direction at all. It's moving in much more googly direction, which is like, we're going to host as much as we can. We're going to index the world's information. We're going to be a platform. Wojcicki understands the ins and outs of like ads, digital advertising, probably better than anyone on the planet and has to her credit, transform the company through this pretty major advertising crisis. I think because of that role, I think there've been plenty of blind spots in what goes into YouTube's larger role in society. Certainly my, my sense is in the book as she came in sort of a little bit unprepared for what the platform was going to be. And, and I think the world is sort of unprepared for what uh, YouTube and the internet would move before 2016, the direction it would go. It'll be really interesting to see. I think some people are still surprised to see her there for this long. Do you think she'll be the next CEO of Google? I can tell you that there are people inside Google who think that if Sundar were to leave, that she is on the short list. I think that's accurate. I think for some people, TikTok has become the new YouTube. And obviously TikTok has many similarities, but is that the case? You talk a little bit about it at the end of the book. I mean, is TikTok the new YouTube or does YouTube still win the day? And if so, why? I found it most interesting talking to the early, some of these early pioneering YouTubers and they're like, oh, I feel like TikTok today is what YouTube was like in, in 2006 and 2007. It was this new canvas. There was, you know, TikTok has started to pay people, but it's not really, you're not really driven by financial incentives necessarily. Or there's like a gamesmanship to like make the most creative video that people will really love. And I think there's a discovery aspect to where YouTube is just so big and crowded, it's really, unless you have a, a sizable audience there, it's really hard to get noticed. TikTok, you can kind of, at the moment, you can kind of luck out and become a viral hit. And who knows how long that'll, I think they might, will very likely follow the same path as YouTube as they grow, it becomes like a, a more crowded place and, and more difficult for new people to break through. There was a Pew study that came out a few weeks ago of US teens, 67%, I think, said they use TikTok. 95% said they use YouTube on a regular basis. YouTube is like the primary sort of television screen, uh, even for the TikTok Gen Z generation. For the younger generation, like for kids under five, maybe they'll graduate into TikTok and spend less time on, on YouTube. But right now, they primarily watch YouTube. It just has so much more than what TikTok has at the moment, right? Like if you're, you are going to want to like fix a sink or like learn a new recipe, maybe there's a world in which we'll sign on the TikTok to look for that. But now we go to YouTube. So writing this book, you probably had to watch a lot of YouTube. What's your favorite video, if you have a favorite? This one's a favorite for a lot of YouTubers and in mine as well. Bill Wirtz, W-U-R-T-Z, made this video called The History of the World, I guess, which is a 20-minute animation. It's like brilliantly bizarre thing that can only exist on the internet. And like this work of art, I go back to that on a fairly regular basis. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Mark Bergen. To learn more about YouTube, Google, and Alphabet, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. 
The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the producers are Katie Ferguson, Meta Lutzhoff, and Michael McDowell. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Jeremy Binks is our news editor, and Tim Rostin is the executive editor for MarketWatch. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.